You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. We have a lot planned for the summer. Um, We've got some great folks coming in from outside that we love and appreciate. But um, this summer, we're doing a spiritual formation series called, we're calling it the Summer of Story. And we're going to sort of officially kick that into gear next week. But what we're going to do is explore the ways our stories form us. How many of you realize the story you tell yourself affects you? And the story the Lord tells you affects you. And that's the one we really need to listen to. But um, you might remember we've recently studied the book of Ruth and we saw how her story, the story of Naomi and Boaz formed and sustained them, which was actually the very story of God himself on display in their lives. And in his plan, they actually became part of the lineage of David, the great king of Israel and a forefather of the Lord Jesus himself. They didn't know that was what was happening, but they were living out that story with God. They were paying attention to what they ought to be about. And the outcome was that prolific in the very lineage of Christ. And so we're going to focus on the development of our faith. We're going to try to reinforce the things that are valuable to us, things like intimacy with Jesus, respect for the scripture, and treating everyone with dignity. So what's your story? Where does it come from? And most importantly, how can you, how can we live from the story of God in a way that produces human flourishing? that makes us um, prosperous, that can bleed out, bleed off into other people's lives. So we'll introduce that a little bit more next week. John Mark's going to speak, and I'm looking forward to it. But this morning we have someone else who is very, very dear to my heart. It's Randall Worley. And he and uh, Randall and his wife Penny and their family, they have three boys have been, yeah, let's clap a little bit. Randall and Penny and that family have been part of my life, part of my Christian experience for over 30 years. And I, uh, maybe above most others, value, of many others, value his friendship. I value his wisdom, his ability to communicate his longstanding Um, relationship with the Lord and the fact that he's walked with him uh, for many years. I think Randall's a charter member of the Through Many Dangers, Toils, and Snares I Have Already Come Club. I don't think he's the president, but he could be the vice president or the secretary. But anyway, let's welcome Randall Worley this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, as he was talking, it was it reminded me of uh, something that John says of himself when he's addressing the churches in the book of Revelation that is often, in my opinion, overlooked uh, because we are so intently 
paying attention to the vivid imagery that he uses in the book of Revelation, but he says something to these first century believers that were under intense persecution. He said, I also am your companion in tribulation. And uh, I, I know that may have just gone right by some of you, but it, it really is important, in my opinion, over all these years uh, to have people that are real companions, that understand uh, what it's like to empathize with you. Uh, my definition of empathy, I'm not sure it's original to me, but my definition of empathy is the echo of someone else's pain. And there's a distinct difference, isn't there, between empathy and sympathy. So this morning, always good to be with you. I'm uh, appreciative that I have not so far been able to wear out my welcome. Uh, you continue to in invite me back. I'd like to invite you, if you would, to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. And I'm going to read some verses of Scripture that... I'm sure that you probably have read at least more than once. It is um, layered in meaning, but we are going to try not to excavate this passage of Scripture or exegete it in great detail, unpack all of its nuances, uh, but to go after something here that I think that is particularly relevant, uh, not only to where you might be as an individual, but where we are as a broader culture. Uh, in Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 2, it says, Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said, Are you the one who is to come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went their way, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's house. And then did you, and what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, that's my text. My topic may sound somewhat enigmatic at first. It might present somewhat of a conundrum for you. But my topic is the opportunity in offense. We don't usually consider an offensive experience, uh, conflict with someone, to have within it an opportunity. And uh, it's my intention to somehow help you to get a different perspective. Uh, most of the time, what we consider to be problematic is not problematic at all. It's the way that you see the problem that is the real problem. 
And so this text that we just read to you here, it's obvious that Jesus and John the Baptist have a very unique relationship. If you're not familiar with the backstory, you need to know that their first encounter was a prenatal one. Elizabeth, his mother, his aged mother, is now in her third trimester. She's six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And uh, the implication, the inference of the text that describes this encounter between Elizabeth and Mary, a relative, was that she had not felt the baby move for six months, which would have been cause of concern, even though she had had this powerful prophecy that she was going to conceive miraculously and have a child, and that this child will be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that we just read to you there in the text. And so Mary, who is also carrying a miraculous child, is in her first trimester, and she goes to visit Elizabeth. And you probably remember at the sound of Mary's voice, the scripture says that John the Baptist began to leap in Elizabeth's womb. The implication in the original language is that that's the first time Elizabeth had, had felt the child move. The very first time. There was something resonating from Mary. There was something that she was carrying that was of a similar DNA to what Elizabeth was carrying. Maybe you know what it's like that you can go and sit and listen to someone that is maybe an able speaker and communicator of scripture and uh, you are mentally stimulated, but you're not moved here in the womb of your being. But then there are times when you go hear someone I hope that's the experience you have this morning. And when you hear the word, there is something that resonates deep inside of you. And promises that you thought were possibly stillborn begin to leap again inside of you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Are you with me so far? I know what that's like. I know how it's sometimes it seems that promises that I've carried, that the gestation period has been so protracted. I wonder if I ever really heard from God to begin with. Whether I was really genuinely overshadowed. Whether what I'm carrying is legitimate or illegitimate. But then I have an encounter with someone. I hear a voice. Not an echo. Not somebody that has just learned well to repackage ideas. But I hear a genuine voice. And suddenly what I thought had lost life comes to life inside of me again. This must have been what Elizabeth felt like. Now, I don't want to get too much in detail here concerning the connection, the unique relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist, but we do know that that was their first encounter, and we have no scriptural evidence that they had seen each other again until that fateful day when John the Baptist is standing on the banks of the Jordan River, and he is baptizing people there in the Jordan River. And Jesus interrupts the baptismal service. How vivid this must have been. John is going about his business, immersing people in the Jordan River in this baptismal service. And he happens to look up and he sees in the crowd Jesus. Now, again, we don't have any indication whatsoever that they had had any contact, that they had seen one another in over 30 years. And of course, that first interaction, like I said, was prenatal. They didn't actually see one another. 
And you know his declaration, I'm sure. This famous declaration, behold the Lamb of God. He did not say, behold, there's Jesus of Nazareth, one of my relatives. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's important, even though I don't want to get too far off base here or off topic. It's important to note that John the Baptist did not say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, even though that is true. He says, behold the Lamb of God that take aways, that takes away the sin of the world. That's really an issue that has not been dealt well, well with uh, as it relates to religion. Because we have made it more about our sins, our bad behavior, than our sin. And what is our sin? What is all of our sin? Singularly. That all of us can relate to. I want to submit to you that what it has to do with, with is a lack of understanding of who you are. When Jesus is said in Luke 19 that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. It doesn't say that he came to seek and save those that were lost. He came to seek and save that which was lost. What is this nebulous thing that he's referring to? That which was lost. You see, the, the real issue as it relates to us being followers of Jesus has never been about us learning how to proficiently keep the rules that we assume that he wants us to keep. As a matter of fact, you probably will find yourself growing more when you're getting it wrong than when you're getting it right. I feel, I feel myself drifting here, but I'm going to go with it if, if, if you're okay so far. You know, the Christian life is not difficult, it's impossible, because Jesus never intended for you to live for him anyway. No, he, he never intended for you to live for him. It was always his intention that he would live his life in and through you, not you living for him. And religion has done us a great disservice, hasn't it? In pounding into us that we should live for Jesus the what would Jesus move, movement that we know so much about. When reality, what he wants you to understand that he is the only one that can live the life that you should live through you. That's why Paul would say powerfully in Galatians chapter two, he said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I dare not frustrate the grace of God. It's not even me that's living anymore, but it's Christ that is living in me. So John the Baptist had not seen him until this day there on the banks of the Jordan River, and he identifies him. And I, I, I wished I had time to elucidate this with great clarity. What a moment, what a watershed moment it was as Jesus is standing there at the exact same place, by the way, it's called the, the called Bethabara. It's the exact same place that Joshua centuries before had led the children of Israel to cross over into the promised land. So at this moment, this epic moment, John the Baptist and Jesus are standing in the exact geographic spot that Joshua had been in and all the children of Israel as they crossed over the Jordan River into their promised land. Amazing. And of course, you know the exchange that takes place between Jesus and John the Baptist. You know, it was not false humility when John the Baptist looks at him. I mean, again, how did he recognize him? 
This had to be something that was that came via spiritual perception because he had not ever physically seen him, but he recognized him. And you know the exchange that takes place between him, Jesus, uh, I mean, John the Baptist, in genuine humility says to him, I'm not worthy that I should even stoop down and take off your sandals, much less baptize you. And Jesus retorted and said, no, we have to do this so that all righteousness can be fulfilled. Of course, when he comes up out of the waters of the Jordan River, you know the story well. There is the heavens above him open, and there is the Spirit of God that descends upon him in the form of a dove. And whether the people on the bank heard it or not, I'm sure John the Baptist could, he he had to have heard what was uttered for the first time. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then they go in different directions, which leads us up to this particular text. Took me a while to get there, but that's not unusual for me. So John the Baptist, many of you already know that he's been imprisoned as a result of him calling out the wickedness of a leader. And again, we can't go into all the backstory. So he's in prison. He will eventually be beheaded. I've always found that interesting. You know, John the Baptist had absolutely no miracles in his ministry like Jesus did. He came to announce the ministry of Jesus, but he had no miracles or signs and wonders as Jesus did. His message was one. He had one string on his guitar, and it was repent, 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 repent. And maybe not in the tone like most of us are hearing the over-the-top message of repentance. You know, the turn or burn. If you die, you're going to fry. Don't be left behind. You know, you know that brand, don't you? Are you, is anybody familiar with that? No. What he was really doing, this odd, uh, idiosyncratic prophet. And I think that's, that's why Jesus said, you know, what'd you come out to hear? Somebody wearing soft clothing. That certainly was not descriptive of John the Baptist, was he? He was disheveled in his appearance. And the Bible describes him as wearing, uh, a camel's hair. And uh, that he ate wild locusts and honey. Can you imagine what he looked like? A disheveled personality. Hair that looked like Albert Einstein. And a beard that you could probably find a nest in there somewhere. And here he comes. This wild-eyed, sun-tanned prophet who had spent all those years in the wilderness. His skin is like leather from being in the wilderness all of those years. And he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The reason why I think that's worthy of mention at this particular point is because John the Baptist's message was nothing but repent or the changing of your mind. Why did he not have any miracles? Because his ministry had a different assignment to it. And that's why I find it ironic that he would eventually, his his death would take place as a result of him being beheaded. So he's talking to people about changing their minds, and his death would come at a beheading. Maybe the reason why his message was one-dimensional and about repentance is because he realized is that, that Jesus, who was the head, had come. And in only, only, the only way for him to have headship was for him to lose his mind. Now, in reality, this is what is happening if, if, if you read this text. 
and really leaned into it because he hears about the miracles that Jesus is performing. And I finally get to what I want to talk to you about. He hears about the miracles that Jesus is performing. And suddenly he is seized with doubt. He's in a prison. Uh, this is his first experience in a prison. And sometimes when I read texts like this, I, I do my best, you know, uh, to find myself between the words, to find myself between the verses and recognize, even though I have never been arrested and I have never been inside of a prison cell, that I have fashioned my own prison over the years through my doubts and through my offenses. The worst prison in the world is not one with high walls, guard towers, razor wire. The worst prison in the world is the one that you create between your ears. The worst prison in the world is what you create for yourself. You may be moving about free. I mean, you don't have to have a jumpsuit with Department of Corrections on the back of it to live an imprisoned way of life. But this is essentially what was happening to John because he hears about what Jesus is doing and there he is alone with his thoughts. And see, here's, here's where we really get to the crux of the matter. This is what I want to talk to you about, that there's an opportunity and offense. When he hears about this, obviously he is understandably wondering why isn't Jesus coming to deliver him? Because what was his message? You know, Jesus goes and he tells his John's disciples, he says, go tell him, you know, that the, that, um, uh, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and so on. The poor have the good news preached. Did you notice Jesus left out one part of his message? Because in Luke chapter 4, he would say part of his message was to set at liberty those that are captive. Do you think John was familiar with that part of his message? And Jesus conveniently left it out. And that's why Jesus would send this message to him, not in indifference or insensitivity. Which, which by the way, uh, how many of you have ever gone through extensive periods of time where it seems to you, it seems to you, that God is entirely indifferent and insensitive to your situation. Nobody's responding. Uh, it's so wonderful to meet you guys, okay? Uh, I want you to pray for me afterwards. How many of you have gone through protracted seasons where it seems, it seems that God is entirely indifferent and insensitive to what you're going through? This is where John is. This is the prison that he's holed up in, in his own mind. It wasn't just the physical walls. It wasn't just the dungeon they'd thrown him in, but it was here. And God did not respond through Jesus in the way that he thought he should. He's wondering about, hey, wait a minute. I went out on a limb here and I declared that you were the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I baptized you. I identified myself with you. Where are you now? I was loyal to you, but you're no longer loyal to me. I read this past week something that really captured my attention. It said, some people aren't loyal to you. They are loyal to their need of you. And once their need changes, so does their loyalty. Wow, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? At least to a few people. 
You see, what he's dealing with here is something that all of us are dealing with, and that is that your perception of me is really a reflection of you. And my reaction to you is an awareness of me. John the Baptist is wrestling with this. Jesus doesn't respond in the way that he thought he should. Uh, we are all involved. I was thinking about this this past week. Uh, especially as I get older, I'm be- becoming more contemplative and reflecting more on why I showed up. Why do I still have a pulse? Some of you younger ones, you're not there yet, but you will. And uh, I was thinking about how were we just born to eventually grow up as functioning adults engaging in gainful employment to achieve and to accumulate? Is that, is that what this, uh, this whole experience is about? Working for a living and still missing what's important in life? Owning, owning a home and still living like a homeless soul? I mean, that sounds like a strange connection, but it's true. Driving dream cars and still being a hitchhiker on this solitary, selfish road, insulating ourselves from other people. Is that why we're here? I mean, the Western way of thinking, the Western lens, that's pretty much what we've been sold and that's what we believe. Or were you sent here to experience relationships? I think that's what you were sent here for. We don't live for, if what we, what do we live for if it's not to live with others experiencing the many risks of love? I mean, is there anything more challenging in life than relationships? No, I don't, I don't think so. And when it comes to our growth, which we are all interested in growing, aren't we? When it comes to our growth, we have to understand that growth happens on parallel planes. It happens vertically and horizontally. And that God puts people into our lives that often we think are sent to irritate us when in reality they are sent to be our teachers. Over the years, I have gleaned a great deal from academics and from those that have devoted themselves to the study of Scripture and the study of life as a whole. But some of my greatest teachers have been not the usual suspects. They've been the people that didn't even realize that they were teaching me about forgiveness. They didn't, you know, listen, let me help you with something here. Don't pray. And don't say in worship to God, I want to experience deeper levels of your love. Because he's listening. But the way that he allows you to experience that is not the way you expected. Because he will send the most annoying, irritating, Are you guys okay? Yeah. That's exactly what he does. Because you ask him to teach you and to lead you more deeper into his love. And so what he does, he allows you to have encounters with people that are most unlovable. 
listen, there's no cure for being human. (laughs) I love that line. It's the title of a book. There is no cure for being human. And so God has not just sent us into this human experience so that we can accumulate, so we can achieve, so that we can have all these things that we think are essential to meaning and the human experience. No, he sent us into this human project that he created so that we would understand the dynamics of relationship. That's why I said growth happens on parallel planes. You not only grow into him, but you have to grow out in connection with other people, understanding that, you know, that separation has always been a myth. Separation, you know, is not only a myth as it relates to God. It's never existed, never will exist. You know, sometimes we're, I understand we're sincere and we're praying for God's presence. Well, listen, there is no way not to be in God's presence because his presence is so pervasive. There's no way to escape it. So Jesus says here, blessed is he that is not offended in me. But like I said earlier, John, the Baptist, you would think had every right to be offended. Now, this particular word that Jesus uses here, offend, in uh, Matthew 11, is a stumbling block. But in other places, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus uses a very interesting word from which we get the word scandal. Our Americanized word, our westernized words, scandal. But when Jesus used the word in Matthew chapter 18 in particular, when he talks about offense, he's using a very, very vivid word picture that would have been familiar to first century Christians. He's talking about not just a trap, that was used in order to capture an an unsuspecting animal that had to be, you know, ingeniously camouflaged because the instincts of the animal are, they are able to recognize something that doesn't belong. So he wasn't talking about the trap itself, but he was talking about what was referred to as the bait stick. This is the word offense. So essentially what Jesus is talking about when he talks about offense is either a stumbling stone, something that you just fall over inadvertently. He's also talking about something that the animal instinct in us is instinctively lured toward the lurid. It's lured toward those, toward those things that feed our base instincts. That's offense. That's how he describes it. Isn't that a graphic description? And of course, unsuspecting to the animal, once they trigger the bait, they don't understand that concealed is the trigger of the, of the trap. I mean, listen, don't we hear words today with great frequency that we used to never hear? Like triggered? Oh, come on now. Participate here with me. It goes better if you do. Isn't it true? I mean, I never used to hear that. If you used the word trigger 20 years ago, you know, I thought you were talking about 
a mechanism on a gun. But now, or how about gaslighting? Right? I mean, excuse me. I'm going to look at some of the older ones in the group. If we heard gaslighting 25 years ago, what would it mean? It would have something to do with the pilot light on the furnace. But you understand the vernacular of the day, don't you? You understand that bullying and gaslighting and triggering, all these things because we live in a culture that is poised to offend or be offended. And the problem is, is that we don't usually, we're not usually aware of it until we've already been ensnared by it. Am I helping anybody so far? <clears throat> Many of you are familiar with uh, George Will. And he said, he said that taking offense has become America's national pastime. Listen to this. He's, I mean, he's brutal. Being theatrically offended supposedly signifies the exquisitely refined moral delicacies of people who feel entitled to pass through life without encountering ideas or practices that annoy them. And the problem with offense is that it's really hard to figure out what to do with it after you're done using it. Gosh, I mean, how many, how many of you, like myself, have found yourself caught in a trap? You went after the bait. And, uh, of course, I mean, listen, here, here's another phrase that is uh, often used in today's culture. Culture wars. What kind of war? Culture wars. Baiting. Triggering. Gaslighting. This is all characteristic. These are synonyms of the offensive culture that we live in. And we go for it. You said, I'm sure that there's some of you wondering, I thought you said that you were going to talk about the opportunity in offense. Thank you for reminding me. Because there really is an opportunity in it. I'm convinced that it is essential. It is a part of your life's curriculum. You're going to be talking about spiritual formation over the next few weeks and months. This is a part of the curriculum. It's not an elective. I, I may have mentioned this on previous visits, but uh, just a, a few weeks ago, you know, I'm scrolling through social media mindlessly. I know you don't do that, but I'm scrolling through social media mindlessly and I'm looking at all these narcissistic, self-absorbed people. And I, I mean, I'm not bothering anybody, but this is all going on in the prism or the prison of my own mind that I'm building. And as I'm scrolling through that, I think to myself, these people are so self-absorbed. And in that instant, I felt the Holy Spirit remind me, 
Is it not being self-absorbed that you are bothered with people that are self-absorbed? Oh God, help us. There, there really is no such thing as, uh, and I'm trying to find a place for closure here. There is no such thing as no fault insurance in relationships. You're going to hurt people. People are going to hurt you. It's just the way it is. Missteps, misunderstandings, they're, they're inevitable in attempting to, reci- to achieve intimate connections. It's just going to happen. But I will tell you this. If you don't learn anything from what I've said today, I promise you that holding on to hurt and offense is an exhausting way to live. It's a waste of energy. Offense, I'm convinced, it does not have to, it doesn't have to be an obstacle. It can be an opportunity. Becoming angry and cynical. That's the natural default setting. And of course, it's going with the current and the negative energy that is, that is flowing right now in the culture. The real problem is, as far as I'm concerned, is discerning the, the effects of offense is recognizing the distinction between your feelings and your thoughts. So which comes first, your feelings or your thoughts? Some of you just woke up. Um, what comes first, your feelings or your thoughts? Your feelings? Oh, really? Have you considered that it's your thoughts that precede your feelings? You know, here's another word that has become popularized, but is still just as old as the Old Testament. Scapegoating. Right? Scapegoating. And there's not a person in this room that has not experienced pain on some level. Relationally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. All of us, it's a part of the human project. It's a part of the human experience. We've experienced pain. One of the things that is particularly fascinating to me these days is the science of epigenetics. Anybody ever heard of epigenetics? Yeah, some of you have. You know, it's, it's the, uh, the thesis, it's a book that is written that, that the mind keeps score, or the body keeps score, I should say. The body keeps score. That the body has the ability to remember things that the mind knows how to segregate and suppress. I'm convinced that's the reason why a lot of people suffer from physical uh, difficulties is because they have not ever resolved offenses. They're like that wounded animal that went and they got out of the trap, but they went after the offense. They went after the allurement. Well, I mean, isn't it true like... No other generation before, we have this insatiable appetite for the salacious, for the scandalous. We're a rubbernecking culture, aren't we? We just got to see why and where and who. And the media continues to condition us to look for that. 
And we don't understand just how debilitating and disempowering it is. John the Baptist was offended by this. I mean, I understand that he is going to be executed. He's going to lose his head. But in reality, I believe that every offense is an opportunity for you to lose your mind. Not in a bad way. (laughs) I'm not talking about you having a meltdown. But I'm talking about you losing your mind and connecting with the mind of Christ. Learning how to diffuse it. Whose voice do you hear the most? Your own. And unfortunately, we live in a time where there are a lot of incredibly intelligent people. I mean, you know, the the persona that they project, they're confident and they're incredibly intelligent. But when it comes to EQ, right, emotional quotient... They are greatly lacking because emotional quotient, our emotional stability and maturity has to do with our own self-awareness. It's recognizing that you never treat me the way you do because of who I am, but because of who you are. I knew that this was a delicate subject when I chose it. But how many of you are really earnestly wanting to get beyond some things that, I mean, is chewing your leg off. Anybody? I mean, we're supposed to be, see, when Jesus talked about eternal life, he was not talking about life after life. He's talking about life within this life. Eternal life and abundant living is what I'm supposed to be experiencing right now. And I can't experience that by living on the low level of offense all the time. Just waiting on you to say something. You know, gosh, there's, there's, there's so much paranoia these days. It's like the guy who suffered some, from such an acute case of paranoia, he couldn't even go to a football game because if he went to a football game, is he sitting in the stands every time the teams got in the huddle, he thought they were talking about him. That kind of paranoia is airborne these days, isn't it? The innuendos, the, uh, you know, the, the things that, you know, we are convinced we know what they mean and you don't. Have you ever seen a motive? Yet we act like we do. So that's why self-talk and emotional intelligence is so important. EQ is so important is in the throes of all that. And it's, it's an opportunity to learn something about yourself that you would not have known because you think you know yourself really well. But it is not until you meet somebody that mirrors something in you that you don't particularly like that you discover things about yourself that you didn't previously know. (laughs) Blessed is he who is not offended in me. And he goes on to talk about there's never been a greater prophet ever born of a woman than him. And we look back on that and we consider that to be such an an amazing accolade that is given to John the Baptist. But I think really if we are, and I, 
I'm even hesitant to use this language because how convoluted it has become. Is if we are going to be a prophetic people. When I say prophetic people, I'm not just people. I'm not just talking about people that walk around, you know, with these amazing insights and amazing spiritual intuition and giving words of wisdom and knowledge to people. All that's really important. But if listen now, please hear this. If we are to be a prophetic people in this day and age, we're going to have to learn how to deal with the level of offense that we're, that we're being confronted with on a daily basis. Because this is what causes everybody who is going with the flow of the culture wars and the alienation and the scapegoating that causes them to see you as somebody that has a different imagination, that has a different reality than they do. That's what being a prophetic people is, as far as I'm concerned. It is not about just standing up and calling out all the woes of our culture and our society. It is not just about standing up on our soapbox and telling them, hey, you're all going to hell. The end is near. You know, stop it with your chicken little theology that the sky is always falling. And learn to live with a, outside of a different persona than the reality that the culture is pointing to. That makes sense to you? This is what he's calling us to. I want you to stand. John the Baptist was disappointed. Listen, for all of you that have been disappointed with God and with other people, It's not because God has failed you or people have failed you, but your expectations of God and those people have failed you. I mean, how many of you have invested years of emotional currency into relationships and uh, you've, you've reached the point where there is, you know, this vulnerability and intimacy that you've been looking for And um, suddenly, this person that you call friend, they do something that is totally shocking to you. And if you don't say it, you think it. I never saw that side of them before. As if they were concealing it from you. The truth is, you didn't have a friendship, you had a fantasy. You had created them in an image, and then when they didn't measure up to it, you were offended. You took the bait. Maybe if we are to be like Jesus, what would Jesus do? You know, the overused, abused, and misused slogan. Maybe if we're to be about him, we are able to look at people that will potentially betray us, deny us like he did with Peter and say, Satan has desired you to sift you as weak, but I have prayed for you that your faith would fail not. Oh, I'm not going to deny you. And you know the story because Jesus could see what he was becoming, not what he was. And again, in that moment, 
I'm thankful for every teacher that I've had outside of the context of your normal learning experience. Because the people that have taught me the most about forgiveness and unconditional love have betrayed me the deepest. And they don't even know it. John, you were talking about earlier, it was not original to me. Paula D'Arcy says, God comes to you disguised as your own life. <laughs> so we repent this morning. Everybody smile at me because I'm getting concerned. All right, we repent. We, it means that we are willing to change the way we see things, the way we think. We humbly repent. We, we relinquish that. Oh, this is a tough one. Can you say this? I'm saying it for you. I relinquish the need to be right. You know, how, you want to know how to totally disarm an explosive situation? Because I'm telling you, I'm just tired of living my life, you know, sweeping for mines all the time. Anybody else? Is when you withdraw the energy, your energy from that situation. You watch it happen. I've watched it happen again and again and again where you let people vent. And sometimes it's the only way for, this, for them to see what spirit they are of. You say, man, that's passive. No, it's not. Because you engaging in it is passive aggressive. Just let them vent. And don't add energy to it. And eventually they'll implode and they'll see what you would not be able to convince them of with even your best argument. Oh, <laughs> Father, we thank you for this checkup from the neck up. Uh, we thank you for this uh, jolt to our hearts. Can you say that? <laughs> Can you? I, I thank you for this jolt to my heart. I thank you, Lord, for making this, this adjustment in my, my perception. And uh, I recognize that you have not failed me. Others have not failed me. It's been my expectations of them and of you that have failed me. So I humbly repent before you for that this morning in Jesus' name. And I thank you, Lord, if somehow you can grant unto me the grace necessary to make this adjustment, this course correction in my lifestyle, that the years ahead of me hold great opportunity whenever I am offended. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.